big round of applause. Have a seat, have a seat, have a seat. It is so good uh, to have you guys with us here today. If it's your first time to The Vine, uh, my name's Andrew, I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad that you're present with us, and uh, we are absolutely jam-packed today uh, in the overflow as well. Welcome to everybody in the overflow. We're so glad that you're with us, uh, as well as everybody that's joining us online, streaming from around the world. Uh, we're so glad that you're with us as well. We come today to the actual turning point of the whole of the Exodus story. In fact, the event that we're looking at today is not just a turning point in the Exodus story, but it is probably the central narrative in the whole of our scriptures. It's certainly the central narrative that has shaped and formed both the Jewish faith, but also the Christian faith ever since. It's a central act of God where the axis of his redemptive love for humanity actually pivots. And a moment where we see both the power and judgment of God, and yet also his mercy and his grace come together. Pharaoh, after nine plagues that have slowly built up to bring a condemnation against the pantheon of Egyptian gods and the idolatry that it has created in its people, Pharaoh is about to discover the brutal consequences of his hardened heart. For God is about to act in Egypt like God has never acted before. And when he does, finally, Israel's long walk to freedom is about to begin. This is our 14th week of Exodus, but we've only just got to the start of the Exodus. Are you with me? The 10th plague that we're looking at today is the plague of the, the death of every firstborn in Egypt, every firstborn son. It's a plague of staggering contrasts. Because on the one side, it does show this reality of God's justice and his holiness. But on the other side, it challenges us with deep poignancy. It's the kind of plague that you can't stand back from and just read in the scriptures and think, oh, that's nice. It's a plague that grabs you visually, passionately, and speaks of things that's difficult for us to reconcile with a peaceful and loving God. But just like we saw last week, where we need the appropriate lens through which to view the plagues themselves, so when it comes to the 10th plague, we need to have the right lens to approach it and to understand it. Like last week, where we saw that there was an actual beginning to the plague narrative that the storyteller wanted you to look through, so here in the 10th plague, there is also a lens through which God wants us to look through as we look at both the brutality and the poignancy of this 10th plague. And to show you that beginning, the actual uh, Exodus uh, story of the 10th plague, the plague of the firstborns, is found in Exodus chapters 11 and 12. But the lens through which God wants you to see it is actually found in Exodus chapter 4. Actually, in a moment where Moses has just met with God at the burning bush. And off the back of that burning bush moment, Moses is having a conversation with God about how Moses and them feel capable of being able to go back to Egypt. He's still in the wilderness at this point. He's not gone back to Egypt. He's never spoken to Pharaoh. But God speaks these words to him 
in that moment. This is Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, which you're going to do in just a little while, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I've given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh this, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. I want you to get into your head what's happening here. Before Moses has gone back to the land of Egypt and confronted Pharaoh for that first time that we see in chapter 5, Here, whilst he's still in the wilderness, God begins to unpack for him what's going to happen in the plagues. And he begins to say, look, I see you as my firstborn son. Here's the powerful thing. This is the first time in all our scriptures where God refers to his people as his children. This becomes a major metaphor in the rest of the Christian narrative. The rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament speaks about God's love for his children, God's love for his sons and daughters. All of that starts here. This is the very first mention in the whole of Scripture where God identifies himself as a father over Israel, as a father over his people. And he says to them, don't you realize that Israel is my firstborn son? We know in Chinese culture the importance of firstborn sons. Can I have an amen? I know that was a very quiet amen. That was like... Raise your hand if you're a firstborn son in the room. Come on, put them up proudly. All right. Some women raised their hands. That's a little worrying, but we'll come back to that later. (laughs) But we know in the culture here that firstborn sons is important, isn't it? And it was no different in ancient Near Eastern culture. Because back there, if you were a firstborn son, it came with privilege. It came with prestige, and it came with power. You were going to be the one that would carry on the generations of your family name. You were the one that actually held all of that prestige in front of the world. The rest of the family looked to you to provide. The rest of the family looked to you to be the one who would carry forth the integrity and the honesty and the the value of your name. The firstborn son had a big job to do. And God says, these people are like my firstborn son. They're the ones that are going to carry forward my name into the generations that are to come. They're the ones that have the value and the integrity and the honor to show the world my character and my name because my firstborn son represents who I am. Do you follow that? So it's important. But I want you to see this. He then speaks to Pharaoh and he says, you have a firstborn son too. And I'm going to do something to your firstborn son. That firstborn son is going to be killed. And when we read it like this, we think, how can God do that? How can God allow that to happen? Well, this tension between the firstborn son of Israel and the firstborn son of Pharaoh's family is the lens through which God wants you to look at as you now come to the 10th plague itself which is found, as I said earlier, in chapters 11 and 12. Now, there's a lot of scripture here. I'm not going to go through it all. I just want to pull out a couple of key verses for you to really understand God's message in the 10th plague. The first is found actually in Exodus chapter 11. I'm going to start in verse 1. It says this, Now the Lord God said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Can I get an amen? Finally, it's going to work. 
Finally, this plague is going to have the work that God has longed to want to do. Finally, Israel is going to be released from their slavery. Starting from next week in our Exodus series, we're going to be talking about a free Israel. No longer bound in slavery to the ways that they've been treated for 430 years in Egypt. Now, because of this event, God's people are going to be set free. Verse 4 says this. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the slave girl, who's at her hand mill, and all the firstborn of all the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. I want you to see something really important here. Because often when we think of the 10th plague and we, we hear about the killing of the firstborn sons, we immediately think that this is God's polemic against Egypt and Egypt alone. But I want you to notice something which is really clear in the Hebrew, but it's also clear in the, in the English. It says every firstborn son in Egypt will die. What it doesn't say is every firstborn son of Egypt will die. Are you with me, church? This is a very important distinction. Because God in chapter 4 had said, Israel is my firstborn, right? you got to bring that context now into here. And now God says, there's this 10th plague coming, the killing of all firstborns in Egypt. And he actually gives a demonstration. He says, Pharaoh's son will die, but also the son of the slave girl. Who are the slaves? This is something that's happening, God is saying, to both Egypt and Israel. And it's important that you understand this, God is saying. Because this is the plague, all the other nine plagues have impacted Egypt and have let Israel go. But this plague, this plague's for both of you. That picks up even further in chapter 12. Let me read you chapter 12, verse 12, probably the most important verse in the whole of the Passover narrative. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down in the land of Egypt every firstborn man and animal. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. There it is. In all of the land of Egypt, every firstborn will die. This is really important because Israel had to understand that they also were not right before God. Now, this wasn't just about God coming and saying to Egypt, hey, you guys have been nasty for 430 years and you've treated my people as slaves, so I'm now going to be nasty to you. This is a God of justice. And a God of justice is not playing favorites here. And he's coming before both Egypt and Israel and saying, hey, Israel, don't think that this is not about you. Remember I said last week that God's call to let my people go was not just a call to Pharaoh in Egypt about the slavery they had caused for the Israelites. It was actually a call also for Israel about the slavery that they had created for themselves and their idolatry, that they needed to deal with their idolatry. And so God shows up and says, here's what's going to happen now. You're going to have to deal with your idolatry because both your idolatry, Israel, and your slavery of my firstborn sons, Egypt, both of those things have to receive justice. So I'm coming and I'm going to kill every firstborn son in Egypt. Could you imagine how that would have felt for Israel? Because you'd be forgiven, wouldn't you, from thinking that maybe by this time in the narrative, Egypt, uh, Israel were kind of going, <laughs> this is all about those nasty Egyptians and what they've done to us for 430 years and how they've been so nasty and mean to us. And look what God has done. The last nine plagues have given them that impression because the nine plagues didn't touch Israel at all. But now everything changes. 
And, and the reason why this is really important for you to grasp is because when it comes to the idea of judgment for the sin and brokenness in the land, it involved everybody. God is not showing, God is not showing distinction or favoritism in the concept of justice in the land. If anybody has broken his law and broken his heart and broken sin in the land, that'll be judged by the 10th plague. That's a sobering thing that we all have to wrestle with. But the reason why that is powerful is because of what we see happen next. You see, God then says, Israel, you're as guilty. And you need to understand and wrestle with the reality that you're just as guilty as the Egyptians. But in your guilt, Israel, you are my firstborn child. You are my firstborn son. And I'm covenanted in love with you. And so despite the fact that, yes, there is justice and judgment needed, I'm going to actually pay the price for that judgment and justice. Even though you are guilty and you need to understand that, Israel, I'm going to make a way for you. I'm going to make a way in my covenantal relationship for you that you don't need to go into impending death like the Egyptians. You're going to get to experience revived life. And here's the powerful thing. The only difference that there is between Israel and Egypt is this, blood. The only thing that is going to separate these two nations is nothing Israel's done. It's not their moral superiority. It is not the fact that they are just a special kind of people. It is only going to be this that will separate them, blood. And the question you should ask yourself when you're reading the Exodus story, why blood? Why is blood going to be the separating thing between Israel and Egypt in this moment? One thing that you may not have realized is that actually blood has been the background character in the whole of the Exodus story so far. Blood was right there at the start when the midwives bravely decided to stand against Pharaoh's decree to murder all the newborn Hebrew boys. Blood is there when Pharaoh decides to drown all of those Hebrew boys in the Nile. Blood is right there when Moses decides to take on the mantle of Savior himself and murder an Egyptian. Blood is there when he flees from Egypt and finds himself in the desert. And in the desert place, he actually defends his future wife, Zipporah, against an invading shepherd army. Blood is there. And then blood is there right in the first plague itself. The first plague is spoken about so profoundly as Moses stretching out his hand with his staff and touching the Nile River and the Nile turning to blood. Blood has been there the whole time. And because blood has been there, the great question we wrestle with is, what is it about blood, not just for the Israelites, but for the Egyptians that matters so much? Because when God chooses blood to be the differentiating factor between the two nations, it's because blood wasn't just important to Israel. It actually had something to say to Egypt too. In ancient Near Eastern Egyptian mythology, blood played a very central role. And to help you to understand that, I want to take you now back to Egypt once again. And I want to take you to where 
the Israelites lived in Egypt in those moments. It's a place called Goshen because it is that place where we see the importance of blood. Let's take a look together. I've returned to these fields here behind me today because it is right here that perhaps the most significant moment of Jewish history took place. Behind me and buried in these fields is the ancient city of Avaris. It was the capital city of Egypt for the Hyksos, a Semitic group of people who invaded here during the 15th dynasty. But Avaris as a city was actually older than when the Hyksos was here. In fact, recent archaeological evidence has revealed the existence of an older, more sophisticated community that used to live here. And those people were from the Canaan Syria area, a Semitic group of people that moved in here, settled, grew to a really large number, and then all of a sudden left very quickly, right at about the time that Egypt's power was decreasing. All of which tells us this, it is very likely that right behind me here is exactly where the Passover took place, where God actually brought the final judgment on Egypt to release God's people and send them to the promised land. It happened right here. And, and, and here's how it happened. God actually came to the Jewish people and he told them to, to take a lamb and at twilight to sacrifice that lamb, dip their fingers in the blood and put it over the walls and doors of their home. In so doing, creating protection for them and their families. So I want you to track with this. There was an animal sacrifice. It created some shed blood and that blood was then used to create protection. Now, why is all of that important to our story? Well, what is it about blood that actually was the significant catalyst to releasing God's people into freedom? What is it about blood that was important not just for the Israelites, but for the Egyptians as well? Well, to answer that question, I need to now take you back to the ancient temple in Talbasta and show you something there that will change your perception about what the Passover is all about. Since antiquity, blood has been recognized as the essential component of life. Without knowledge of the circulatory system, ancient Egyptian religion recognized the heart as the seat of the soul and all eternal life. But the Egyptians also saw blood as something hidden, visible only when flowing from a wound or during childbirth, miscarriage or menstruation. As such, blood became a symbol not just of life but also of death, something that gives but also something that takes away. Because of this, blood was deeply revered and to control blood was to literally hold in one's hands the power of life and death. This power was what animal sacrifice was all about in ancient Egyptian religion. And as blood was the central image of this power, the sacrifice of an animal to the gods revolved around the collection of the blood that was shed. Here in the Museum of Telbasa is a great example of a sacrificial stone that was found in the temple of this area. The animal would have been placed on the top end of the stone slab where its throat would have been cut. The blood that came forth would then flow down these rivets, across towards the middle section, and then drain through the various holes you can see here, eventually flowing out of the bottom onto whatever was chosen to receive the blessing of the sacrifice. 
Interestingly, it was the flow of the blood that was important. The blood flowing out of the animal onto the stone signified the bringing of death. But the blood flowing out of the stone onto whatever icon or offering was below it signified the bringing of new life. This new life was understood as a form of protection, protecting the person from death through the sacrifice of another. Think about that for a second. Egyptian animal sacrifice was about the exercise of power through death and life and the protection it brings through the shedding of blood. And this is something that can still be seen in the Egyptian culture today. Around the time that the city of Cairo was first established, between 909 and 1171, the Fatimid Caliph ordered the slaughter of a large number of sheep and lamb as a declaration and protection to the city. After the slaughter took place, people were encouraged to leave traces of the blood as a sign of blessing on their property or brand new items that they owned. To this day, traditional Egyptian families continue this practice by dipping their hands in blood and placing it on their material goods, things like brand new cars, in order to show humility to their neighbors and honor to the gods. Now, let me pull together what we've been teaching about blood in Egyptian history and culture. See, for the Egyptians, blood was critical for three things. The blood actually said, first of all, that it symbolized the power over life and death. That blood also brought blessings and honor to the people. And finally, blood was a way of actually bringing protection for life. Like if you wanted to be protected, you would use blood as that symbol. So is it a wonder then that God chose the Passover as the thing to bring the final judgment to Pharaoh and the Egyptians? The very thing of asking the Israelites to take blood and to place it on the door frames of their property to symbolize protection and honor in that place. This was basically God saying, hey, Egypt, do you want to know who has the power of life and death? It's me. Hey, Egypt, do you want to know who can really protect you? It's me. It was God establishing his authority upon the Egyptian people. There's this verse in Leviticus that I love. It says the life of the flesh is in the blood. The Passover begins the Exodus narrative, and it does so by laying down perhaps the most foundational truth of our whole Christian story, that it truly is in the shedding of blood that we are set free. It truly is in the, in the shedding of blood that we are set free. I want to show you how God speaks of this blood shed uh, in the original Passover story. Verse 13 of chapter 12 says this, This blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The thing that God mentions about the blood right up front is it will be a sign to you. The blood was certainly a sign to Egypt like I just explained in the film. It was a sign to Egypt that all of the things that they had thought about with animal sacrifice really was only truly powerful in the hands of Yahweh, this one God. That the sacrifice to all this pantheon of Egyptian gods was useless and, and, and nothing. That no protection, honor, or life 
which is what blood symbolized for the Egyptians, could ever happen through the worship of their Egyptian gods. It could only take place through Yahweh. The Passover was a sign to Egypt that this blood, the blood that has been shed on behalf of God's people, was the only blood that could truly set them free. But it was also a sign to Israel. It was a sign to them that God can provide a substitution to their sin. It was a sign of God saying to Israel itself, hey, you are guilty. There is a judgment that should come. If I'm a God of justice, I have to bring that judgment, but I will provide a blood, an animal, who will be sacrificed as a substitution to that. And Israel learns that their sin and their brokenness can be covered by the blood of this animal. And I think for many in Israel, they would have remembered what happened to Abraham and Isaac. And now Abraham had gone up in that hill and was about to sacrifice Isaac, and God shows up and says, no, there's another one for you. There's a goat in a thicket for you, and that one will be a substitution for you. And now here's Israel realizing that they have every reason to be judged, and God has shown up and said, there is a substitution for you. My grace offered now through the reality of blood. So when Israel comes and they take that blood and they place it on their door frames, here's what's going on in their minds. They're thinking to themselves, I am guilty. They're thinking to themselves, I should be blamed. They're thinking to themselves, we didn't get away with it. We have broken things. We've broken our covenant with God. They've thought to themselves, God has every right to come and take our firstborn. God has every right to come and and do what he said he's going to do against us as well as against Egypt. We're equally guilty. But this blood, this blood we're applying in hope, in faith, and in trust that if God sees this blood, if he understands that we are aligning ourselves to the reality that we know that we're guilty, but this blood can set us free, then maybe God will pass over us. This was a sign, not just to Egypt and not just to Israel, but also a sign to God. The blood on the doorpost was a sign to God for God to say, this family trusts in me. This family agrees with me. Because I I want you to think about this for a second, because this is actually really important. You see, the, the actual sacrifice of the lamb itself was not the main thing. The taking of the lamb and sacrificing it and eating it that night was not the thing that was going to protect them and bring salvation. In fact, what Israel had to do was not just kill the animal, but then had to take the blood of that animal and apply it to the doorposts. And it was in the application of the blood that they were showing a moment of faith, a moment of trust. And any family of Israel that had just killed the lamb and not applied the blood would not be spared from the judgment that was coming. This act of faith, this act of trust, made this whole original Passover the main teaching place for Israel themselves? Will we align ourselves to the hope that God has provided for us in the substitution for our sin? And so every home that had blood on the doorposts and blood on the walls, the destroyer, it says in the passage, passes over that home because of their faith. Are you with me? So there's a call on Israel to partake in the substitutional sacrifice that had been provided for it. And in so doing it, they found freedom and grace.
They found the mercy of God. So the message of the plague of the firstborns is that God is holy and just. But the message of the Passover is that God is merciful. And in this way, through his infinite love, God makes it possible to be both just and forgiving at the same time. He actually paves the way for what our Christian faith completely sits upon. Should it surprise us then that the primary metaphor that the gospel writers use to speak of what Jesus does in his life and his death and his resurrection is the Passover imagery? In fact, the disciples at the time and the prophets at the time, they grab a hold of this really quite vicious type imagery and they begin to apply it to the reality of Jesus because they understand that no number of slain lambs would ever cover the reality of humanity's sin. And so they begin to look for God to provide a substitutional sacrifice that's different from just slain animals. Which is why when, when Jesus walks past John the Baptist for the very first time at the very beginning of, chapter, of, of John chapter 1, John the Baptist says something out loud about Jesus. I, I want to read this to you from John chapter 1 verse 29. He says, The next day John saw Jesus turning towards him or coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No one told John about this. This wasn't like Jesus has performed all these miracles and Jesus has done all this stuff and they're beginning to connect the dots. This is a prophetic statement from John. The Holy Spirit is revealed to this in his spirit and he looks at Jesus before Jesus has done any ministry and he says, this one is the Lamb of God. This one is going to be slain for the sins of the world. This one is going to be killed. And if we take this one's blood and we apply it to ourselves, we will know what it is to be forgiven even though we carry sin. And this beautiful idea that Jesus somehow in his death and in the shedding of his blood was going to set people free becomes one of the primary ideas of the New Testament. In fact, all of these scriptures here draw that out from across the New Testament narrative. Things like, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That he might make atonement for the sins of his people. To him who loves us and has freed us from the sins by his blood. The whole of the New Testament is the blood of Jesus does this. But there's something that's still amiss. Should we take somehow the blood of Jesus and, and apply it to the doorposts of our homes now? How do we take the blood of Jesus? And how do we make this a part of our faith, a part of who we are? How does actually the death and resurrection of Jesus pay the price for our sin? And it's almost as if God says, you don't need to place blood on the doorposts of your home anymore because I'm going to take the blood of my son Jesus and I'm going to place it on the doorframe of your heart. It's going to be like I literally kind of just reach out with my hand with the blood of Jesus and I cover your heart. I just do it right here. I just take it and cover your heart, your heart of darkness, the heart of brokenness, the heart of sin. I cover it with his blood. And when I cover it with his blood, I'm saying to you that you don't have to do anything to be set free. That the work of Jesus on the cross is for you. It's for you and your heart is covered now because I love you. And I will provide the sacrifice for you. Are you, are you with this? 
But just like Israel, who in the original Passover had to realize that the death of the animal was not enough, that they had to take the death of that animal and the blood of that animal and place it on the door frames, so it is also for us. You see, Jesus' death on the cross is not a cure-all for all. It is not like a a moment that universally suddenly cleans everybody of all of their sin and, and hey, you can just live however you want for the rest of your life and everything's going to be perfectly fine. It doesn't matter because Jesus has paid the price for you. It's not a cure-all for everything. You, like Israel in the Old Testament Passover, have to apply the blood by faith. You have to dip your fingers in that blood, if you will, and you have to apply it over your heart. You have to be the one that says, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. I believe that that is a a substitutional sacrifice for me. I will take that blood that Jesus has shed on behalf of my sins, and in taking it by faith, I apply it to myself through repentance of my sin and belief that Jesus is really the only Son of God. And in doing that, I align myself to the reality that Jesus died for me and for all of the world, and in faith, I apply Apply that in belief and repentance and by saying it with my tongue, by baptism, by communion, by all the ways that I can, that I am aligned to the substitutional sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It sets me free. It sets me free. I don't need to fiddle with any doorposts, but I do need to keep my heart soft. I do need to choose in faith to walk with the blood of Jesus, to embrace that blood for me, for me. It shouldn't shock us then that when Jesus wants to explain about this sacrifice he's going to do, he uses the imagery of the old Passover to speak about it. In fact, what Jesus does just the night he's betrayed and arrested He gathers his disciples in an upper room and he takes them at the very moment that they're celebrating the Passover. The very moment where they're celebrating the reality that this is what has happened in the Old Testament for the Jewish people in the past. He takes that moment and he says, now we're going to change it. And, and Jesus does something that has never been done in history before. He embodies himself into the story of the Passover. And he says, I now am going to be the one who will be your sacrificial lamb. And my bloodshed will truly set you free. I want to read this to you, um, hopefully without getting blood on my Bible, from Luke chapter 22. It says, oh, it's so sticky. Are you with me, everybody? I can't do it, Lord Jesus. All right. Luke 22, starting in verse 7. Then came the day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. Jump through to verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And then he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. There it is. This Passover will find fulfillment in me. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he takes the bread and he gives thanks and he broke it and said to them this, This is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is now poured out for you. 
Jesus takes the imagery of the original Passover and he begins to apply it to himself. And he says, I am now your new Passover. And you don't need to smear stuff on on any kind of thing anymore. All you need to do is come around this new meal. I create a new way. Just take the bread and break it and share it amongst yourselves. It's my body. Take the cup, this cup, which is now the symbol of the shed blood of Jesus, and apply this to yourself. Take this now and allow this to become your lifeblood. This is being poured out for you so that you would know the forgiveness of sin, so that you wouldn't be judged, so that the Passover would happen for you. And what incredible encouragement it is. And I want you to sit with this final thought. This blows my mind. God chose his firstborn son to die. Have you noticed that? He takes the 10th plague, the one that he had against Egypt and against Israel. And he says, if anyone's going to suffer in this plague, it's me. I will take my firstborn son, Jesus Christ. And he's going to go to the cross, willingly choose himself to go to the cross. He's going to have that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's like, really, Lord? And then he's going to go, but let your will be done. And he will go freely to the cross and he will give up his life because it's the ultimate example of love. It's the ultimate invitation into the freedom that comes from the blood that sets us free. It's our way now of gathering around this thing that we call communion and taking the bread and taking the cup to align ourselves in faith. This is our faith statement. It's us saying, I agree that Jesus was God's lamb. I agree that I'm guilty, that I should be judged. But I also thank God, agree, that that judgment passes over me. Because even though I deserve it, his blood sets me free. For it really is in the shedding of blood that we are set free. What we're going to do in a moment is I'm going to invite you to come and take communion. If you've come here with family and friends, you're welcome to come and take communion as family and friends. I want to invite you to take the communion and pray together as family and friends. Here in the lower house, we're going to do the communion by inviting everybody here in the lower house to come forward to receive communion. Uh, We also have communion tables just here on the sides if it's easier for those in the fixed seating. For everybody here, you're invited to come around the doorway and take communion here. In the upper house, if we ask you to get out of your seats and come somewhere, it would be a nightmare. Uh, So for you guys, our uh, team are now going to hand out communion to you as well. But for you as well, I want you to take your time. When you get the bread or the cup, you can pray with the people next to you. You can share in communion together. And you can allow yourselves to come under this faith step of celebrating what God has done in the blood of Jesus. And so for whether we're here in the lower house or in the upper house, can I pray for us? And then you're going to have time to come and do communion. Father, I thank you for each person here. I thank you for your blood. I thank you that it really is your blood that sets us free. I thank you, Lord, that you are the Lamb of God, that you are the one who has sacrificed all, everything, so that we who might be guilty get to walk free. Father, that's the central thought of the Christian faith. And Lord, there might be people here in this room where they've never heard that before. Maybe some people in this room are online who don't know you. But Lord, they're here today and they've heard the most central gospel message there is, that God 
loves them. That God loves them so much that no matter what they've done, no matter what brokenness, what sin, whatever it is that they carry, by the blood of Jesus, they're forgiven. There's a Passover for you. And if you're here in this room today, and this is the first time you've heard this message, this is the first time you've heard that there is a God who so loves you that he would send his only son to die for you so that you would be released from anything that you've done. That's good news. That's the best news that there is. And if that's you, I wanna encourage you just to say a prayer in your heart as we take communion. And that prayer is just to come before God and say, God, thank you. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for dying for the things that I've done in my life that I'm not proud of. I ask you to forgive me of what I've done. And I ask you to set me free from it by your blood. And I receive your sacrifice on my behalf. Thank you, Lord. It's a very simple prayer. Thank you. Please forgive me. And then thank you again. And then you do that, you're doing that step of faith that I talked about. You're taking the death of Jesus and then applying it to yourself. And that means that you become one of his children, that you become a firstborn son of God, a firstborn child of God. And it's the most amazing, wonderful thing. So if that's you here today for the first time, we welcome you to pray that prayer and come and speak to us afterwards. And we'd help, love to tell you a little bit more about what it means to be a Christian. But for the rest of us, this is communion now. This is your time. You don't need to rush it. It's your time to engage in the bread and the cup and receive the grace that Christ's sacrifice gives for you.